0: Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.
1: The Crooked Store just launched a bunch of new merch inspired by your favorite Crooked Media podcast reminding you to unplug, reconnect, and get festive. Some of the new items include a Nog Save America mug. You listen to Pod Save America. You volunteer through Vote Save America. But maybe what you needed all along to save America was eggnog. Log off ornament inspired by offline. This ornament shows a snoozing doodle lying next to a burning log, which also has a burning smartphone on it. A true classic Christmas scene where the only screen in sight is being burnt to a crisp. Treason's greetings, crew neck. Tis the season for some treason. follow la 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 la. Straight from the top secret documents at Mar-a-Lago to the ski slopes of this fantasy world holiday design. Every order from the Crooked store will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. Head to crooked.com slash store to check out the new arrivals now. Warning, this podcast contains spoiler for Andor, including episodes 10 and 11. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X Ray Vision, the Cricket Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, in the previously on, we'll be commemorating the life and work of Kevin Conroy, the iconic voice of Batman and Bruce Wayne for millions of fans around the globe. We will be revisiting Black Panther Wakanda Forever after its opening week and we're talking about. Uh, the, the the reaction to the film, uh, now a week out, and uh, just the general topic of Marvel fatigue. Is it happening? What is it? What's going on? Do we care? In the airlock, we're back in space for Andor episodes 10 and 11. And in the hive mind, we are absolutely delighted to welcome Andor creator, screenwriter, director, showrunner, extraordinaire, Tony Gilroy to the program. Of course, if you want to jump around... Check the show notes for the timestamps. And joining me today, you know who it is the number one Godzilla writer working in ink and pages today in the digital and paper medium. The number one comics historian, the number one knower of things that are related to horror movies. It's Rosie Knight. <laughs> Hello, it's me. Hey, uh, Rosie, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy
2: to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm sad about, you know, Kevin, but I'm happy we're going to have to pay homage. There's amazing impact. And I mean, I'm happy to be talking about Andra again, because this is, as everybody knows, I mean, this is some of the best Star Wars it's amazing. ever put to TV screen book, comic book. Like this stuff is, it's up there. So I'm really excited. And our chat with Tony is good stuff.
1: What a guy. Um, okay, let's let's get into it. First up on the previously on, the discussion of the impact of Kevin Conroy. So Kevin Conroy passed away on November 10th uh, due to an ongoing illness, uh, intestinal cancer reportedly. And quite simply, he is Batman for millions Mm -hmm. of people for 400 plus episodes of television, including his, you know, legendary run on Batman, the animated series. Um, It's hard to really overstate the impact he had Yeah, because you're talking about a time when the Batman movies were coming out. Obviously, still at this time, but they had these the the animated series felt connected to the quote unquote spirit of Batman of the character in a way that that was unique, and it's just impossible to even see. a a still from Batman the Animated Series and not hear that deep, like, baritone voice.
2: Yeah, I mean, so often over the years, especially, you know, many years ago, pre-MCU when superhero movies were, like, back at the top of the game again, like, most people of a certain age, if you ask them who the best Batman was or who their Batman was, they would say Kevin Conroy. The Animated Series was this all-encompassing, iconic thing that so many of us experienced and that for many of us was the most regular Batman that we got. It was on TV. It was easy to follow. You could watch it. Also, it was, you know, came out around the time of Batman Returns. It had a Danny Elfman score. It it felt like it was connected to the movies, but it also felt like it was a part to the comics. It adapted everything from, you know, uh, the Dark Knight Returns to like the most silly kind of, playful elements of Batman. It also introduced Harlequin, obviously. Yeah,
1: huge, huge impact right there.
2: And at the heart of it is is Kevin Conroy and that performance. And for so long, Batman the Animated Series kept Batman alive in the hearts of DC fans and people who love superhero movies and people who don't, people who just like that show and love Kevin. And it's kind of like, I would say he's comparable to, um, you know, Mark Hamill and And Carrie, they really they kept Star Wars alive for a long time when the movies weren't coming out by doing cons and being present and having cameos and connecting with fans and keeping that conversation going and that love going. And Kevin was like that. And recently he'd actually written a comic in the DC Pride anthology that we talked about with Danny mm-hmm. Fernandez called uh, Finding Batman," which is about how growing up as a gay teenager was incredibly hard and how his journey to Batman and becoming Batman reflects that part of his life. It's absolutely amazing. DC actually put it up for free for people to read, so you can read it right now. Um, and it's just, yeah, what, what an unbelievable loss. And I'm just really, one of the things I think is really special is uh, Kevin actually got to play a future version of Batman in the live action CW stuff recently. So I love that we got to see that Batman become, you know, the, the, the Kevin's face Batman rather than just his, his yeah. incredible voice. But yeah, never been a better time to go back and watch Batman, the animated series, which is such a joy and still just one of the best TV shows ever made.
1: Connor Goldsmith, who hosts the unbelievable Cerebro cast, one of the, one of the most indelible, unique and fun podcasts mm-hmm. about comics, specifically the X-Men that is out there. It's absolutely vibrant with a really fun community. Um, tweeted the other day, it's been lovely to see the whole comics internet coming together to celebrate Kevin Conroy. Apart from his unrivaled work as a voice actor, which will be immortal. I'm so sad that such an important gay elder is gone. He lived mm-hmm. through so much and achieved so much. I'm grateful. was such an important part of yeah. of his story. Just um wonderful. Kevin Conray, you will be missed. All right, we're we're a week plus away from uh, Black Panther, Wakanda forever. And I've been interested to see the, just to take in the reaction Um, and specifically the reaction. You know, I did this, I did a guest spot on um, the Recode podcast with Peter Kafka for Vox. And he was asking me about Marvel fatigue. And I wanted to talk to you about it, Rosie, because he was like, well, well, you know, what do you think about Marvel fatigue? Some people are tired of it or they're waiting for people to be tired of it. What do you think's going on? And it's been interesting that it's, You know, as phase four has kicked off, it has been really – it's been a huge topic. Mm -hmm. And I think there's various reasons for that. Um, And first of all – With regards to Marvel fatigue, it will happen if it's not happening now. People will get people like, you know, everything that is popular will at some point become less popular and stop happening. There's no there's no reason to uh, imagine that (laughs) the Marvel movies will remain the top box office breaking movies in the Mm -hmm. world for the rest of our lives. Like they will fall off at some point. But I think what's interesting to me is, you know, having come from. A writing background a criti- somewhat of a, a criticism background is I think a lot of what's happening is as Marvel was going on its run all the way up through Endgame I think that there were a lot of critics and people who like movies generally just fan of movies generally who thought oh shit is this what movies are going to be now and mm-hmm. and there are we're not Particularly, maybe they like two or three of the MCU movies, but we're not particularly fans of the movies, which is absolutely fine. Yeah. You like very what you like and like what you don't like. But I but if I can I can also understand if I was a critic who didn't like Marvel movies, I would be like, shit, am I out of a job if I tell <laughs> And I think now that Phase Four has come out and it, you know, didn't have the kind of drive narrative drive I think that yeah the, it's, that it's not as cohesive phase, as wh- the other right. phases it's somewhat disparate we're, you know we're telling different stories about hidden societies and there's no there has been no central big bad to kind of shoot for over the course of the phase I think that I think that a lot of this is people just feeling more comfortable now to say you know what I don't like Marvel movies where are we're, we're in the past it would have been like you'd get you'd potentially get an email from your editor like too bad like <laughs> <laughs> sorry no uh, i'm just saying
2: i'm not confirming or denying if that's the case but i will say it sounds familiar i'm saying that i think that is realistic and the, the, i think there's two big things here right one yeah. is that as comic book fans as people who lived through the 90s boom when comic books were everywhere. We've actually seen this before. The idea of fatigue yeah. on comics or comics being the biggest thing in the world and they're everywhere and they're talking about death of Superman on the news and there's 500 people queuing up outside a shop to meet Rob Liefeld. You know, we've <laughs> we've lived through that. We've already lived through, oh, this thing we love is now the most important thing in the world. Uh, to In the early 2000s, to a certain extent, Spider-Man, X-Men. Yeah. So we know that these things are cyclical. If people are tired of Marvel, that's like you said, it's to be expected. And I think the other thing that you can't kind of count out about the way that the conversation is going, especially on a critical lens, because, you know, people have to watch all these things, multiple movies in a year. I think yeah, that that's Disney, a big part of the, uh, Disney Plus, of the critical texture. I think that Disney Plus has been so influential for both better and worse. We love it. I mean, Division to me, yeah. unbelievable. Like Jonathan Major's Kang, these are things, these are stories I never thought I would get to see. And if we weren't living in an age where, you know, I'll put it in brackets, content, because I don't really like calling yeah. this stuff that, but like content is king, you know. We probably wouldn't be getting a story based on a weird Scarlet Witch and Vision miniseries, or we wouldn't be venturing into the world of Kang if we hadn't already spent 10 years Digging yeah. into some of the weirder parts of Marvel. But it to me is very understandable that certain people might be overwhelmed or tired even quicker because of the fact that there are so many of these things to take note of. There are multiple weekly shows. And if you add Star Wars into it, then you're getting, and then you add all the other things Disney owns, Pixar, you know, there's multiple yeah. different versions. I will personally say the thing I think that is positive about this for people who don't like it or who do like it, phase four to me is about a certain level of choice. There's, fil- there's a lot you. of stuff. I agree with you. I completely agree with you for all different kinds of people. Now, look, we. I always. I love indie movies. I love world cinema. I love horror. I love B movies. I. Love Fantasia Fest. I I, I always want to see more kinds of movies, so I understand that celebrating Disney for a certain amount of variety is like cheering on a monopoly. But I will say, yeah. I think I think Phase Four is actually positive that not ev- it it's not this huge cultural behemoth that is everyone has to like every movie. I actually think it's great that you can like love Eternals and not like Doctor Strange. (laughs) I like both of them, just for clarification. (laughs) I really like Doctor Strange. But I think the fact that there's more of this stuff and people can have varying degrees of conversation. Also, I am very much a person who says, if you don't like it, just, just that's fine. Like, you can actually just not like it. And there's been a lot of voices who, like you said, are feeling more comfortable. Does that relate to how people actually feel about Marvel movies? I don't necessarily think so. I mean, just to compare numbers... In the opening weekend of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, arguably probably the most anticipated movie of the year on a pop culture level. Sure. Agreed. That made 180 million domestic, 330 million worldwide in about three or four days. That is almost dollar for dollar the same amount that Black Adam made in like in almost that- a month. Yeah. So it's there's a there might be a critical fatigue. I know that there's definitely general TV watchers who aren't keeping up with every Marvel show, but I don't necessarily know that Marvel fatigue means anything kind of dire for the future of I these stories. Gr-
1: I mean, which is interesting, which is why I wanted to raise it because whenever the question is asked, or whenever I'm asked that, or whenever I hear that conversation, it's always framed as you know almost like when is this is this over now mm-hmm. is this whole thing mm-hmm. over and i and i think that we've gotten to a point where to pick up on uh, something you're talking about whether disney intended this or not we've hit a point now with the movies with the disney plus offerings where it's kind of like okay what kind of marvel do you like do you like spy mm-hmm. shit do you like alien shit? shit do you like do you like cosmic shit do you like weird shit right do you want funny stuff do you want yeah and it's so I, I, listen, I'm sure that Disney wants you to watch every single, <laughs> every single fucking movie. And look, disclaimer, movie. we are yeah, yeah, yeah. watching them. We, we are those <laughs> people. Like, we are, you know, we're in the tank for it, you know, because this is what we have loved. Yeah. Um. But I think we've also reached a point where this it, it, popularity may wax and wane, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. as a as a proposition – these movies and shows aren't really going to go anywhere like the, the budgets may go up and budgets may go up and down they may release less movies per year they may release less shows yeah. per year well, which i release think is probably more and, possible. and more and more and more until- yeah yeah or they make more more animated whatever it is but this stuff is here like all this this genre is yeah. here now and it's you know, not going anywhere for the foreseeable future, although, you know, the density and the cadence of them may change.
2: And also, like, this is something that I've talked about with you guys, but, like, these patterns have been seen before, right? Like, the X-Men movies, X1, X2, people loved those. Uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1 and 2, they loved them. Then you had, like, Tim Story's uh, Fantastic Four, which I think are very fun, even though... They disrespected Galactus, so I've never forgiven that in the second <laughs> one. But like, I feel like movies like Morbius, like there's always going to be a dilution of quality when something yeah. becomes so saturated. So that's going to happen. And the real truth is that until a new movie comes out that has almost 100 years of source material for people to be like, oh, yeah, I can mean, make one of it those it, too... Yeah these movies are going to keep being here. It's like whenever I try and think about it, like, you know, action movies, the trends, the blockbusters, the things that have happened before, it's hard to predict what that kind of zeitgeist shifting you thing mean, it's, it's could unpredictable. Be. It's unpredictable. Yeah, it's unpredictable.
1: It's This is when I was working at the Ringer. We were in binge mode, and, and Game of Thrones was coming to an end. Like a, a, a major part of the conversation was monoculture, and is this mm-hmm. the end of monoculture mm-hmm. with the end of Game of Thrones? Will there ever be anything that captures the imagination like this? And similarly, to end, you know, Endgame was coming mm-hmm. on the heels of the end of Game of Thrones. So it was like this feeling of, oh, have we have we exited the era of th- this huge, th- you know, piece of cultural content that everybody takes pardon and no one, again, as you said, no one can predict what that thing is going to be. But if there's one thing I'm sure of is that there will be another thing like that again and again and again because we crave people. Human beings crave it. We crave this massive story that we can all talk about with our friends or argue about and and say, did you notice this? I I noticed this. The whole world is based on stories. That will continue. Culture, human
2: culture has been based on stories from the traditions of oral storytelling to religious texts to, you know, comic books. Like, I always remember I went to this unbelievable, it was like one of the best days of my life still. It was like a Mike Carey how to make comics <laughs>
1: like Harry. little
2: class. Yeah, and it was yeah. so cool. And I love the stuff he did with Apocalypse. So I'm super into it. Yeah, and, and he said, you know, if somebody just found, like, an entire run of the X-Men comics in 500 years they would probably think that was like our odyssey or some yeah. kind of real Absolutely. folklore that shaped. That is 50,000 plus issues. You know, it's it's decades of human storytelling. It's analogous. It's not real, but stories really matter. And whether it's comic book stories, whether it's adaptations of Michael Crichton books like Jurassic Park, whether it's bio, biographical films, whatever that next thing is going to be that kind of blows up the world. It's going to be about stories. And like you said, we're always going to find something else, especially with the internet, because that allows us to connect over these things in a way that was never possible before. And that's part of why we want the communal storytelling, the water cooler moments of Game of Thrones.
1: Okay, up next, we return to a galaxy far, far away to discuss Andor, episodes 10 and 11. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Doomlings. The world is ending. And if you think this is some sort of game, well, good, because it is. Doomlings is a delightful card game for the end of the world. Somewhere on a doomed and distant planet, life has emerged competing for dominance until the world's inevitable destruction. Score points by playing traits for your doomling species, making them more adaptable, resilient, and and mischievous evolve your doomlings throughout ages and catastrophes which are special rounds that befall the planet forcing you to adapt your strategy until the end of the world doomlings is a card game for two to six players ages 10 plus and takes about 20 to 45 minutes to play it's perfect for dinner parties family game night or when you just needed to take a break from prepping your underground bunker Doomling sets itself apart from other card games because it's like a hybrid game for tabletop enthusiasts and non-gamers alike. What does that mean? It means it's easy to get into and easy to play. It's accessible. There's a lot of gameplay depth and replayability. It's not like other card games that might have a lot of rules and a lot of specialized decks that might take a long time to learn. This is because of Doomlings' randomized setup and also the fact that there are 167 unique cards in the box, no duplicates or fillers. It feels like a trading card game, but you don't need to build a deck like other games out there, wink, 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 and it can be played fast. Doomlings was funded on Kickstarter in 49 minutes and catapulted into one of the fastest-growing games on the planet. Doomlings has over 2,500 five-star reviews and has received the Dice Tower's seal of approval— And it's also been played in over 80 countries. And America, which doesn't count because we're the best, people say. I don't know. Get 20% off your first order when you use code X-ray at doomlings.com. That's D-O-O-M-L-I-N-G-S dot com. And use code X-ray. That's D-O-O-M-L-I-N-G-S dot com. Code X-ray. X-ray Vision is brought to you by Z-Biotics. The holidays are a lot. A lot of food, a lot of drinks, and one too many awkward family moments. Zbiotics gives me one less thing to worry about. How those holiday drinks are going to affect me the morning after. Have you ever skipped a workout because of the drinks that you imbibed the night before? If you're committed to your healthy routine this year, you need Zbiotics. Nowadays, when I'm drinking the alcohol... I don't bounce back the next day like a high-functioning alcoholic used to. So a lot of the time, I'd be the only person in the group not drinking or, which is loser shit, or I end up just skipping plans with friends altogether, which is super loser shit. That is, until I found Z-Biotics. We all have busy lives these days and can't afford to waste a day stuck on the couch because maybe you had a couple of drinks the night before, Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic, is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by a PhD scientist to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here is how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It is this byproduct, not dehydration. That's the blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. God, are you taking notes? Just remember to drink Zebiotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly. I'll say it again drink responsibly and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to slash x ray to get 15% off your first order when you use code x ray at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money and they don't even care why. Thanksgiving is coming up. So order a pack of Z-Biotics so you and those joining you around the table can indulge a little wink, wink, wink this holiday and still feel thankful you did the next day. The holidays are upon us and Z-Biotics makes a great gift. It's unique, thoughtful and under $40. Perfect for the stocking we'll be we'll all be having more drinks this holiday season so order today to get Zbiotics in time remember to head to zbiotics.com/xray and use code x-ray to check out for 15% off thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode glug 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 <thirteen Informationen> can you swim?
2: Can you swim, Rosie? I I can swim, but I am very scared of large swaths of water. So I was really having a lot of empathy. Uh, for,
1: for our good friend Kino Loy. Well, we are stepping off of the balcony of the prison, it. the industrial prison of Narkina 5 into the water, and we're swimming away to talk about and or episodes 10 and 11. Uh, episode 10, titled One Way Out, written by Bo Willemon and directed by Toby Haynes. And episode 11, Daughter of Ferrex, written by Tony Gilroy and directed by Benjamin Karen. We start with Andor 10. Wow. Olaf's body is wheeled out of the facility after he has been euthanized by the medical technician there. Cassian tells Kino that, uh, listen, we got to make our move now. They can't wait. They, they you know, they, they're, we're not leaving here. You can see that now, can't you? Uh, and Cassian tells him, like, they don't have enough guards to watch us. They know it. They're scared of us. We need to act. When they bring a new person down to replace Olaf, that's when we have to move. Cassian and Kino return to the barracks. They tell the men that they what they know. There's been a massacre on two. Then Olaf was euthanized. And the bottom line is we're not leaving this place. It doesn't matter what your sentence says. doesn't matter how many shifts you have left. You're gonna die here yeah or some other place that's exactly like this yeah and there's a
2: there's a great moment where Cassian says it and they kind of they go oh and they try and explain it away but then Kino realizes in that moment that he has to be the one to tell them and he's like it's true like nobody's getting out and that's their boss that's the man who steered them through and so they know in that moment
1: what a fucking great Andy circus oh. you just did. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like a little Andy <laughs> little Andy circus. I love Andy. I love Andy circus. I wish <laughs> I hope that this I hope
2: this will get him I hope that this will get him more non-CG roles cuz I feel like he's oh, really he's, he's selling it in this. He's just oh absolutely God. delivering at every level. But yeah, thank he, you. That's my secret talent.
1: <laughs> he was he's a legitimately mesmerizing actor on screen. You know, obviously, you know, you know Connected to his CG work, his mocap work, but like a great actor, and he's he's mesmerizing in this. Yeah. Um, at I back at ISB, boo, uh, d- boo. <laughs> Deidre has been tracking Anton Krieger, this rebel leader, uh, and he's they're waiting for him to take this bait that they've laid out there, um, and he's taken the bait. So the ISB is on the on the track of Anton Krieger. They're watching him. Next morning, Kino Loy gets the men ready for what they're going to have to face that day. They go through the motions as if it's a normal shift, and they're just waiting for the moment that the guards bring Olaf's replacement down. On Coruscant, Mothma and Tay meet the gangster Davos. He uh, He's there to hear what it is that Mothma and Tay need. Uh, basically, they need money laundering. Mm-hmm. D- uh Davos sees through this kind of like cover story that they're spinning about a charitable organization that just needs, you know, liquidity. They need an injection of cash uh, to carry on with their charitable works. He sees through this. He says, listen, I'll do I'll, I'll, I'll loan you some 400,000 credits, um, but I don't want anything in return. Mm-hmm. You just owe me. Don't worry about a pay, like, a, you know, some kind of schedule to pay it back. You just will owe me a favor. And Mothma's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to owe a no. gangster a favor. No. Like, can, w- we'll just work something out, like, monetarily. And Davos is like, no. Uh, well, instead of that, what about this? Introduce my son to your daughter. He wants to he wants to set up a, a, a love match. He says, two young people, attractive and privileged Chandrilan citizens. Uh, Mothma is aghast, but Davos is like, take it or leave it. Mothma declines. Clea... Luthen's assistant at the shop on Coruscant brings news that there are uh, uh, marks on a fountain out in the town, which is like a sign that there's a meeting to be set up. But she doesn't like the timing of this. Could be a trap. Uh, Back on Narkeena 5, the guards bring the new man down. Cassian and the rest of the prisoners spring into action. And long story short, everybody fucking gets out. It is pulse-pounding you know, Kino gives this incredible speech. He gets he gets the men all chanting, one way out, one way and he out. And
0: he
2: has this moment, again, it's this thing of they get to the control room. He takes over the speaker and Cassian's like, it has to be you. And yeah, Cassian has basically to has to it. coach him. He's like, you've been doing this. You've been for 500 shifts, 2,000 shifts. You've been yeah. the one whose voice has sparked them into action and, and you have to do it now. And they turn off all the power, and it is just a it's a prison breakout. They get blasters, they are taken down and and guess what? Cassian was right. They did not have enough guards. This is running on a very I'll say tight ship, but cheap. The Empire is cheap, and they've been using the floors and the electrocution to not have to put money into actually staffing this prison.
1: When Cassian is laying that all out to Kino, he he says, and I think it's a fascinating thing to think about how how brutality is actually a, a, a an indicator of of fear and weakness. Mm-hmm. He says, "Listen, mm-hmm. if they had enough, if they weren't scared of us, why why wouldn't they just you know keep everybody alive? They're yeah, they scared need people to build
2: stuff. Why wouldn't They're they keep them alive?
1: Terrified. That's why they wiped out." The entire uh, a floor of two because they're scared and they know that they can't handle us if we all rise up. And then there's this it's a small moment, but it was so powerful when you're seeing these prisoners, you know, fighting their way to the top of the facility, rampaging through it and killing guards and, and you know, moving to the top, taking their revenge there is a, a small scene of these guards ca- like cowering mm-hmm. in like a closet somewhere, just terrified. Yeah. Um, and it was, it it really kind of closed the loop on that thing that Cassian was saying up mm-hmm. front, which was they're scared of us. Yes, they're brutal, but it's their brutal methods that let you know that they're scared.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I want to say as well, this is like another, we talked about this a lot uh, when we were talking about this arc on Narkina 5, but like, this is a show where Tony Gilroy has put you in the position of empathizing with prisoners, prisoners who yep. are doing labor like prisoners do every day in this country, and he is then getting you to support them when they riot against their conditions right. and against the fact when that is it they okay? are in an unjust yeah. system. He is saying, you agree with this. You there is no question that what you are watching is right. And I just think that yeah. is so powerful in the context of the conversations powerful. that we have about the the prison industrial complex. And it was, this is a very special episode out of all of the, and not in like the don't do drugs kind of very special right. episode yeah. way, but I do love those two. Uh, but like,
1: I mean, it's, it's, it is after all the buildup of this arc, is it, in particular, the last two, the, yeah. the previous two episodes, you know. At uh, post Aldani, Cassian's arrest on the vacation world of Neamos and kind of like uh, you know the the trumped up charges by which he is mm-hmm. arrested. This is such a cathartic episode because mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. It's 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 put you in their shoes to such a degree that you understand that this is right. This and we know is they're the right. right. There's no, there's this no question.
2: Is- this is what they need to do. This is. An unjust system that has imprisoned them so their bodies can be exploited for labor and they're never going to leave if they don't yep. do this. It's it's heartbreaking and amazing. And Andy Circus gives this unbelievable performance as this kind of reluctant leader turned man who knows that this is like the one good thing. He has been complicit in this system for so long. Absolutely. And he knows this is one thing he can do. It's it's not a true complicity because he didn't have a choice. But right. in his role as being the, the floor manager, every day one of his crews was getting electrocuted. You know, well, and you he play wanted the to keep game. them in line. Exactly.
1: People will play the game for a long time until it's revealed that actually there's no the game's rigged. end to the game. You know, yeah. The, yeah, that even the rules that are laid out for you are fake. Uh, the men fight their way to the top. Uh, and they find themselves, you know, high above a body of water. And men are hurling themselves off into the water. They're swimming and away. And they're screaming,
2: one way out. One yeah, way one way out.
1: out. And Cassian turns to Kino, let's go, let's jump. And Kino's just like, I can't, I can't swim. And it is a heartbreaking moment. Now, we don't know what happens. We don't. But I think we're led to believe, and certainly because of episode 11, we are led to believe that Kino does not make it.
2: Yeah, and something really important, and like if you're someone who loved when we used to do really deep dive Easter egg kind of breakdowns and stuff, episode 10 is the first episode where we get a li- some little things that are a little bit more than like visual nods. So something very interesting here is that when they show the prison and e- out of yeah. each of the bays where the ships would dock, people are throwing themselves out and swimming away. It's this. It's the shape of an Imperial logo. As we know them now. You yeah. know, so there's these little touches that are yeah, just unbelievable. And it's kind of this really interesting visual way of showing these people freeing themselves from the grips of the empire, like and the imperial this Imperial Prison on Arkina Five. So whew, R.I.P. Kino, you are a real one.
1: Yeah, I mean there's a there's a there's a quick moment in Luthan's shop where I was gonna say pa- where you see Padme's headpiece. Yeah. The he- her headdress, their ceremonial headdress that she wears—that's the, the first uh, the like e- technical is, like
2: Easter it, egg that we that we have in this. I think, and
1: it's an Easter egg, but it's like it is emblematic of how ruthless mm-hmm. the world and this system is now. Yep. Here is something that is a hallmark of, you know, the culture of Naboo mm-hmm. and of a beloved leader of that of that place, and her regalia is just like up for sale now 15
2: years later not even like yeah wouldn't be in a museum you can just go buy it yeah yeah
1: no not even forget even in a museum because they don't want people to remember her this is yeah this is just for private collectors for rich people it is just up for the highest bidder if you want it just walk into Luthen's and buy it it is Mm -hmm. it's a heartbreaking display of what has happened to a lot of the galaxy Mm Luthen goes to this meeting It's in some industrial kind of like area, of course, not far away. And uh, Luthen's contact is Lani, one of the ISB investigators that has been working closely with Deirdre. He has been apparently steadily burrowing into the ISB at Luthen's behest, steadily, you know, providing information to Luthen, who in turn has been, we, we are guessing, holding the man's family hostage somehow or at least threatening. The I don't know if he's holding them. the knowledge. Yeah, the, he
2: knows a lot about this man's family and there right. is a lot of implied threats. Yes. in what he is saying to to Lonnie. And it's unclear it doesn't seem like luthan thinks lonnie's a particularly good person. So it's unclear no. if this is He's it's, just a valuable it's a he's valuable a valuable asset. asset. It, I don't think this is a rebel who did a great job at weaseling his way in. I think this is an ISB agent that Luthen is exploiting. And yes. he's about to find out something very useful. So like, good for him.
1: Right. So Luthen, of course, has been, you know, front and center f- for Deirdre's investigation into Anton Krieger and the spread of, of uh, imperial kind of contraband stolen by rebels across the galaxy. He tells Luthen that OK, uh, Deirdre is on Krieger and they know that Krieger is planning a raid on Spellhouse and the ISB is watching. They want him to raid it because they're going to sweep up that entire network. Uh, and he's like, OK, so I've given you this and I want out. That's it. I'm done. It's getting too dangerous. Like, let me out. And uh, Luthen... He's like, I've sacrificed so much oh, for this. He is. You know, like, what have you sacrificed? And you, then Luthen gives one of the greatest speeches in, in Star Wars ever, ever, ever. He just oh. says, What have I sacrificed? And he then goes on a monologue about, I've, you know, I've sacrificed my life. I've sac- I'm sacrificing right now uh, everything that I have for a sunrise that I'm never going to yeah, see. He's I've sacrificed my honor. Yeah, he's yeah.
2: acknowledging that he has become a man who would a threaten someone's family. Spy would, master. He, yes. he has become the thing that he hates, the thing he's trying to take down. He's, you know, his morals, his values, everything gone. And he's basically living the worst kind of life in the hope that someone in the future can have a better life. And it's this is a really, that line you said about where it's like, you know, um, I sacrificed everything. I've sacrificed hope for like a, a sunrise i'll never see you know that's such great foreshadowing of that moment uh in rogue one at the end when when cassian and Jin watch the sun you know before it looks like the sun's coming up before everything kind of explodes and yeah that it's so funny because that circus has really had two of my favorite lines in this whole show which is the still my favorite is the never more than 12 about the guards yeah but in episode 10, when he says, I can't swim, that is just like heartbreaking. And you think that nothing can like outdo that performance wise. And then Stellan Skarsgård just comes through with the like grimmest, realist, most heartbreaking speech about like the realities and toil that it takes to make concrete change.
1: And also so clear eyed in understanding that the game he is playing is so dangerous that there's no way he lives. No, he's he's like, I'm not going to live through this. And also and this it, stuff and takes
2: it, a long time. He's doing something that might happen 20 years from now. He sees that that things could change.
1: And you it know? and it ties back to the the smallest moment in Return of the Jedi when Mon Matha is is talking about the raid on Endor, what they have to do, how they got these plans. And she says, you know, the many Bothans died to bring us this information. And it was like this window into this, like Bottomless tragedy that mm-hmm. had had to take place in order to deliver this information to the to the uh, rebel pilots yep. and their leaders. And here we're getting, you know, we're it's like we're going through that window and seeing the 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 smallest piece of that story. Uh, a version of that story where all these spies have like laid down their lives to overturn the empire I and mean, it's thrilling it was it was just an it's an incredible monologue it just is like brings you to the edge of your seat yeah
2: it's, this episode is just such a powerhouse turn for everyone involved the writers the directors the cast it's it's so good and diego does such a brilliant job the entire way through he essentially has to He's somebody having an awakening of what needs to be done, still not necessarily for the right reasons. He just wants to get back, see his family, and get his money and escape. He is not all in on the rebellion. But at the same time, he He hates them. He hates them. And he knows enough about what is right and wrong to know that he didn't just try and escape himself. He wanted everyone in the prison to get out. He wanted everyone to be freed. He wanted... Kino to become the leader he could be. We're seeing the awakening of this angry, furious man that we meet in Rogue One. And it's it's very special. I love how much this series is also setting up that. Remember how annoying Jin is to everyone? Cause she's like, all you need is hope. All rebellions need a hope. Yeah. And everyone's like, actually, no, like rebellions yeah. need a lot more than that. And it's been like really fucking hard to like make this happen. And I love how much context. And kind of emotional heft this is bringing. I'm wait. Every week I watch this, I want to watch Rogue One again, but I'm waiting till the finale next week.
1: I'm say same exact. I'm I'm. I feel the same exact way, and I've I too have been holding off on watching it. So that brings us to episode eleven. Daughter of Ferrix. After their escape from the prison, Cassie and Andor, and future Sergeant Melshi, who we will see in Rogue One, as one of the one of the many soldiers that gave their lives in the raid on on Scarif, uh, cling to the side of a cliff. They're trying to evade Imperial patrols, and uh, eventually the patrol goes away, and they haul themselves up. But it just gives you a taste of the many, many. Uh, uh, risks that they are taking and continue to take as they flee from the prison on Arkina Five. Meanwhile, on Ferrex, uh, we learn that Marva has passed. Andor's adopted mother, kidnapper. B is B, a kidnapper, also <laughs> which we we should talk about, and we will talk about it. You know what? She she died. Uh, uh, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's you know what though. It is one thing I've been thinking about in this as we've been watching this, like early days of the fight against the empire kind of unfold is the fact that what we're kind of, what, you know, we, there's a Senate, there's a galactic Senate, Mm -hmm. right. But that, I I think we also shouldn't assume even though we only know about the governments of a few of these places that it's, we're talking about democracies. It's like a, it's a Senate made up of, you know, mainly like, Nobles, royal houses, corporate interests as well, like, yeah co- like court planets that are completely run by corporations, like it, it, you know, Naboo, I feel- God love them, but mm. it, you're talking about like a royal lineage, yeah. like this is there's no actual democracy on a planet no. to planet level, um and it's one of like because that's one of the one of the things I've been thinking about is other than some of the flashbacks on Ferrex. mm hmm you don't see protests, like mass protests yeah. against the empire. I know that the empire mm-hmm, can blow up your mm-hmm. fucking planet. I get it. But they're not everywhere at once. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see this kind of like mass uprising against the empire. And part of, you know, and I and I guess I've just been like asking myself why. And I think part of where I've come to is part of the reason why is the governments that the empire supplanted were not in and of themselves, the kind of governments that you could really protest safely against also.
2: Definitely. I agree. And I think that also the thing that's been really interesting to see about this and is very real to to real-world struggle is to get to that place where you have the million people marching against something kind of protest, you have to have multiple different people all around the world, the galaxy, the country. Yeah these little hubs of people who who want to make where they live better, who want to make things better. And I think that and that can come together and coalesce it in a moment and a movement. But I think that kind of the interesting thing about about Marva is like everyone, I would say like the motto of pretty much about every character in this show is like they're just trying their best. Like yeah. she she made a bad decision, but in the moment it was the decision that she thought was best. And that for Cassian Kind of ended up being a good thing, even though I do think there's more to dig into.
1: Well, I well I bring up I bring up the democracy angle and, and the pro- lack of protest angle to say, and not in any kind of like what way, mm-hmm. that we the republic was clearly imperfect. Look at Marva and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and her stealing a child from a, from a planet. Uh, Because of, you know, the depredations of some kind of corporate power that was working under the aegis of the Republic on this planet. Um, But. It was better than the Empire. And we have yet to really dig into other than those early episodes of this series. Mm -hmm. Exactly how fucked up. The Republic was like we don't actually know. Um, exactly how fucked up the republic was, and some like and as Saul, super producer Saul is noting the uh, the kind of uh, the the early episodes of mm-hmm. Tales of the Jedi in which we see like Count Dooku and and uh, Qui Gon Jinn take down a corrupt center. We di- we we have yet to really get a a real taste it of that feels on like the Disney Plus offerings.
2: It feels like something. That they're leaning into, that they want to get I into, agree. that they want to talk about. I mean, also, if we look at every character in Star Wars, they've gone against usually, yeah, they're obviously against the Empire. The Empire is evil. They are like Nazis, like, that's bad. I
1: mean, they're legitimately, they are legitimately Nazis. <laughs> yeah, they're Genocidal, awful. evil, they're blowing up people. entire planets. And, they're, they're but a lot awful. of our
2: heroes will have that moment where they also, everyone from Amidala, Qui Gon Jinn, Obi Wan, Luke, uh, you know, even like Ray and Finn, Finn especially, obviously as a somebody who left Stormtroopers, but they will also have that moment where they turn against the other side because they know that that's also not an immediate solution. Like the solution has to come from the people rather than the Republic or the Empire or imperialism. Well, I mean, the imperfect.
1: Again, I think that one of the things that Andor brings forth is that that one of the primary differences between the empire and the republic is while the republic maybe would prey on a planet and destroy its ecosystem like a bit at a time the empire would just do it all at once Yeah, empire will blow like that and, and make that's, a point right and that and while they're both and that's not a small distinction mm-hmm. like that's a real that's an actually that's like a major difference um okay continuing so uh Back on Ferex, Marva has passed. B is absolutely fucking distraught, does not want to be left alone, wants Marva back, is actually kind of—doesn't truly believe that Marva has passed. Mm-hmm. Seems like she's he's kind of like expecting her to walk back in through the door. B watches as Marva's body is taken away, trailed by well-wishers from the community. Meanwhile, Cinta from the Aldani crew— and members of the ISB are also watching. They're not aware of each other, but they're both watching, and they're all watching and waiting for Cassian Andor to show up. Cassian and Melshi back on Narkina spot a ship. There's a couple of aliens nearby. They're working a fishing pole. Cassian is like, well, that's an older quad jumper, but I think I can fly it. Melshi's like, great. He makes a run for the ship, and Cassian has no choice but to follow, but the aliens are, are canny, and they trigger a booby trap, which capture the pair in this, like, gross kind of like snot net um deirdre at isb learns of marva's death she uh the local imperials that are stationed there on ferricks are like so the local townspeople are asking for a permit to have a parade for a funeral a funeral parade and like should we give it to him and deirdre is like yes give them the permit because i want bait to mm-hmm, lure Cassian mm-hmm. and in. I know that he won't be able to resist going to his mother's funeral. So, yes, give them the permit. Um, back on uh, on Narkeena, the aliens are discussing what to do with Andor and, Mel- and Melshi. Um, they uh, uh, realize that these two are escaped convicts from an imperial prison and that they all share a hatred of the Empire. So they let him loose and they're like, OK, where do you want to go? Andor is like take me back to Niamos, the the vacation planet. Val arrives at Luthen's shop. Val, one of the Aldani, you know, the leader of the Aldani crew. Cintas' uh, girlfriend Cintas' go- girlfriend goes to uh Luthen's shop on Coruscant and wants to talk to Luthen. Clea is like get the fuck out of it. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be here. This is not on schedule. This is against the rules. You're being very very sloppy right now. Get out of here. And Val is like, I got important information. I need to speak to Luthen right away. And she's trying to pull rank, like I did fucking I did Aldani. What the hell have you done? And then Clea gives another one of these like great, great monologues, where she, you know, where she's like, "Uh, I don't have lately. I have always. I have a constant blur of plates spinning and knives on the floor and needy, panicked faces at the window, of which you are but one of many. (laughs) And she's like, but listen what do you have? What's your information? And then Val tells her that Marva, Cassian Andor's mother, has died. Uh, Tell Luthan. And Clay is like, I promise I will let Luthan know. Meanwhile, on Ferex, the ISB is tightening its surveillance of the Andor home. Uh, Brasso, one of uh, Bix and Andor's colleagues on Ferex, is, is in the Andor home straightening up, trying to comfort B. The droid, again, doesn't is is unable to, like, process what mm-hmm. is happening. has gone completely emotionally to pieces, and Brasso agrees, I'll stay here at the Andor home with you just for one night. This calms be a little bit. Elsewhere on Ferex, Bix is reeling from the effects of the horrific interrogation uh, that she was undergoing. Uh, the ISB take her to another room where they question her again, this time, you know, not under the kind of, like, genocide- the sound treatment that they had been uh, giving her previously. Um, and they want to know if they show her a picture, if Anton Krieger, <laughs> this man that they're showing her, is the man that she introduced Cassian Andor to and that he met with numerous times. Back on Coruscant, we don't actually know if she says yes. But you would imagine, I mean, like, I would just be I like, I would yeah, just say
2: it. yes. Also, as well, it's not. So you're, co- sorry to that man, but you're yeah, actually sorry saving... To that man.
1: Although you wonder, I guess the other thing that would be going through your mind, right, is if I give them this, do they need me any am, am I yeah, dead? Then? Yeah. Um back on Coruscant, Val arrives at Mon Mothma's house. Lita, Mon's daughter, is apparently a budding young fascist, and we see her you know, with the rest of her like schoolmates doing some shit that is very troubling to Mon Mothma. Mon shares with Val the details of the particular bind she's in with regards to the money. Imperial inspectors are nosing around the various Chandralin accounts that that Mon has managed, and at some point they're going to discover that there's four hundred thousand credits missing that she moved. You know, to <laughs> she moved to the rebels. Uh, she tells Val that you know I, I reached out to Tay for help. And, you know, we've been working to cover up the monies. She doesn't tell her tell her about Davos, which is probably wise. Um, and then she said, but after Aldani, everything just got impossible. And mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before the Imperials figure out what's going on. Uh, and Val is like, does Luthen know like how much trouble you're in? And she's like, no, but I I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't think so. Mon then tells Val that she's kind of found another way out. And she doesn't say his name, but yeah, we know that she's talking she about Davos she gets interrupted
2: by a fascist daughter yeah. coming yeah. through the door.
1: Um, Cyril
2: gets a oh, call at his mother's house
1: from Sergeant Linus, his old buddy back to the corporation. Uh, Cyril's former colleague tells him that, okay, uh, Cassie Nandor's mother has died and that Co- uh, the ISB and uh, and various groups on Coruscant, a bit, but probably the ISB, ha- appear to be a, uh, taking an interest in this because a lot of calls back and forth from Ferex to Coruscant. And it seems like Andor might show up for- at the funeral. Back on Niamos, Andor sneaks into his former hotel room to retrieve his credits, Blaster, and Karras' manifesto, which, helpfully, the various people who have been staying in this room have not found because no. he hid it like on a top shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere in the galaxy, Luthen arrives at mm-hmm. Saw Greer's hideout. And uh, guess what? Saw has changed his mind. Saw now wants to join Krieger on the Spellhouse raid. He was against it. He was like, I don't know this guy. Krieger used to be a separatist back in the fucking Clone War days. I don't want to lie with a guy like that. But now he's like, you know what? Let's fucking do it. We uh, we get the booty. We get to uh, steal as much as we can from this Imperial facility. And as long as Krieger, uh, you know, follows my rules, we're in on it. Tell him we're doing it. And Luthan's like, no, uh, we can't. And Saw's like, no, no, we're doing it. And he's like, uh, mm. Lucent's like, no, 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 it's going tomorrow. Like, it's way too late. And, and Saw's like, no, 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 we're ready now. Like, we can go. If it's in five minutes, we can mm. go. Um, we're locked and loaded. We're ready to go. And Lucent uh, eventually is forced to say, listen, here's why. The ISB are waiting on this raid. It's a fucking trap. And mm-hmm. and and he's Saw's like, wait, so Krieger doesn't know? And he's like, no. So Saw says, you're willing to burn him? It's 30 men. Plus Krieger, Luthen says, absolutely cold bloodedly, and this ruthlessness absolutely shocks Saw, and he says, "What if it was me? What if What if I was going?" Uh, Luthen says, "That that'd be different." Krieger doesn't know who I am. He has no connections to me. ISB can't track Krieger back to me. He's fucking disposable, and Saw says, "Okay, well, what if I what if I uh want to warn Krieger? What if I uh, what if I do that?" Mm-hmm. Luthen says, "That's your choice, but it would risk everything else that we want to do. It would blow up everything. Think about it. The ISB, if they take down Krieger, they're going to be arrogant. They're going to be confident. There's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of space to, for us to operate because they're not going to know about us. They're going to think they have everything under control. If we warn Krieger and he pulls off, they're going to know that they have a leak somewhere in their information network, and they're going to tighten up. They're going to get." They're gonna just batten down the hatches. It's gonna be very, it's gonna be very, very difficult. Saw gets paranoid now. He's like, okay, if you have, you have someone with Krieger at ISB, do you have someone here? And he's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's wondering, like, do, do you have someone in my group? Who is it? And Lucent says, yeah, it's Tubes, it's <laughs> Benzik, who otherwise known as Benzik, but his nickname Tube. Tube. Yeah, two tubes, and he's like, he tells he tells me everything. Uh, but of course, this is all a ploy to get everybody excited so that he can then steal tubes' uh, blaster and point it at at saw, and saw is amazed, and he's and and it is incredible display of Luthen's resolve because Luthen saw knows has to know that he can't get out of this. Mm-mm. Like, yeah, maybe you Mm-mm. kill saw, maybe you kill two tubes, but you're not walking out of this place Mm-mm. if you do that. Luthen then is like, listen, this is just so you'll listen. Here's all the angles. And he again says all the reasons why they have to let Krieger go down. And he says, anyway, and he he finishes up by saying, anyway, if I was ISB, wouldn't I just let you go on the raid, Saw? Mm -hmm. And Saw says again, 30 men plus Krieger are marching to their deaths for the greater good, whatever you want to call it let's call it war, which is a, just a chilling yeah. fucking line. The writing on this we show is so We learn
2: so much as well about Saw. This is a this is a big Saw episode because not only do we get this, but one of the aliens that Andor gets captured by is one of the partisans who yeah. ends up being part of Saw's partisans at Sysed Ock. So you get a lot of, we're learning not only why Saw hates everyone and is a part and is just like off by himself which understandable to be honest but also kind of who he may be taking with him so it's 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 very interesting to see the way that the Empire and also people like Luther can kind of push people into action
1: well it's it's it is a reflection of something that goes on like in real life you know we're used to Star Wars framing it as You know, rebels versus empire. Mm -hmm. But here we're understanding, and through the Clone Wars uh, and rebels, we're understanding that there were factions, there were schisms. There were different factions that had to team up. Like here Saw is having to make the decision of going against some of his ideals Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm, order to team mm -hmm. up with someone, Krieger, who politically— He was absolutely against during the Clone Wars days, who was a separatist, who was like not pro-Republic. And this is, you know, I'm reading this book, Opposing Power by Elvin Ong, and it's about how opposition forces build alliances in the face of like Mm. autocracies and – and. Uh, and dictatorships. And it talks about like, you know, successful um, protest movements in the Philippines in the 80s and Korea also in the 80s and how these groups, these opposition groups managed to, to um, you know, revitalize democracy in those countries and overthrow dictators because all of these opposition groups that didn't necessarily agree with each other politically, mm-hmm. decided, okay, we actually need—you have a good get-out-the-vote network. I have, like, the ability to communicate to uh, people on television. Mm-hmm. Therefore—and we both agree that this dictator needs to yep. go. Therefore, we need to team up. And here we're seeing that happen yeah. in this fictional Star Wars. These these group—you know, Saw Gerrera saying, okay— I can't do it alone, mm-hmm. fine, I'll team up with Krieger. He's got to follow my rules, but yep. we, we can do this. And that's the, that's how we're seeing this rebellion kind of like slowly knit itself together. It's aristocratic people like with Mon money. Mothma and rich folks like Luthen and these hard scrabble idealists like Saw and other people from who knows where like Krieger, who mm-hmm. d- politically probably during the Clone Wars could not have agreed on one single thing all coming together now because because they agree that the Empire's just got to fucking go.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to see them pushing this message of solidarity across, like, boundaries and the real the reality of how many people there are who agree on the problems with people in power and how few people in power there actually are. That is the nature of the the Narkina 5 escape. There's 5,000 prisoners. That yeah. should have and could have happened any time. But they separate people so that they can't do it. They fight again. They make them fight against each other in this horrific idea of like, this person is doing well, so you're going to be punished for it, which we see in our real life. So I love that idea of reminding people that if you come together, even if you don't completely agree, you may be able to make things a little bit better. It's it's a good message.
1: There's also a really interesting subtext to this entire series that hasn't really been Explored that much now, A- and it is the human supremacist angle to both the imp- the mm-hmm. empire, the empire in particular, but also this kind of nascent rebellion. Less so with obviously Saw's partisans, yeah, which include you know alien uh, fighters in that group. But you don't. The empire is just humans. Like yeah. it, it is humans. Even the people they put in prison. Even the people they put in prison, they are not interested at all in aliens having any kind of agency in the upper levels of their leadership. And and you know, it really underlines how impressive Thrawn's rise in mm-hmm. the imperial leadership is. Because this is not a group that is interested in anything that alien species have to do or say. Yeah, or other want than like their
2: resources. All. Their resources. And
1: that's it. And can you help us smuggle shit? That's mm-hmm. like that's basically it.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting, actually.
1: Now, there's the cynical side of me can also say maybe it's budgetary. They just have the budget. Yeah, you know practical what I mean? effect. But but I don't think that's the case because of how thought out this show really mm-hmm. feels. And, and knowing what we know about Tony Gilder's writing, it seems like a very specific choice to yeah. highlight the human supremacist angle of the empire in particular. Um, in space above Saw's hideout, Luthen uh, makes contact with Clea. They're speaking in code here because they, de- they you know, they're they're unsure if they're being listened to, so they're using this kind of um, a, a dialogue to make it sound as if they're just talking about the shop mm-hmm. and and talking about the various things that they sell there. She is basically telling him that something is kind of off, and you should come home as soon as possible because we need to adjust our plans a little bit. Then the signal breaks off and it's because it's being jammed by an Imperial patrol. Luthen is trying to talk his way out of it as the, as the Empire is making contact with him he gives a phony transponder scan out of Alderaan. The ID absolutely checks out, but the Imperials are like, "Fuck it, we need the practice. Yeah, Let's we just need board to practice. the ship." They're so arrogant. This is like what we saw in Narkeena Five, where it's just like, "Fuck it, arrest anybody." We yeah, they just who's want gonna to have fun. They're, they're
2: the yeah, who's going to stop us? Yeah, who's going to The people who are still stop. involved at this point are, are, are they're masochists. They want to hurt people. Absolutely.
1: So uh, Luthan preps his ship to make a run for it. He engages his countermeasure, shreds the Imperial tractor dish, takes out a handful of TIE fighters on his way to hyperspace. It's yeah, an absolute pulse pounding so action scene. It's so good.
2: And what he does is like a, it's a, an, an EU staple where it's, he, sh- he lets shrapnel out and it is caught in the tractor beam and it destroys the, the Imperial tractor, which is so cool. Like, so it's, yeah, shrapnel, just bump ba da It's fucking great. And his, it's his ship. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, the Imperial ship is the, they call it a Campwell class, which is based on uh, Colin Campwell art. So that's a cool nod, which I think our Discord will really like that one because they've been having a lot of fun with ships during this show.
1: I mean, it's just, it's just like a really, really great, action scene um, and it lets you know also that Luthan is not surviving all of this time because he's gotten he's gotten lucky obviously no but, but he's this also guy's just, serious he's also thought all of this shit through he he's been prepared. doing this a while absolutely um, Cassian contacts Xan on Ferex and uh, learns sadly that his mother has passed he's absolutely stunned and it's an incredible contrast to like the background of Niamos. They're on this beautiful beach. The waves are crashing against the beach. There's this gentle kind of a shushing sound. And he walks over to Melshi and Melshi asks him like about the call and Cassian doesn't tell him what happened. Uh, Melshi is soaking in freedom, but also Melshi has become radicalized by this, it, mm-hmm. by this the whole thing, this the ordeal that they've been through. He says like, w- you know, first he asks, how many people do you think made it out? And they're like, and, in, and. In, Cassian's like, not enough. And then Melshi says, "Okay, we have to tell people what's going on here. People have to know. We need to split up, double our chances of getting out and getting to someplace where we can speak the truth of of what happened here. Um, And let's get out of here. And they they bid each other goodbye. Cassian gives Melshi a blaster. And they give this really like, I mean, I got choked up a little the way they part because you just know that they're going to be together again. You understand also like how meaningful it is that they're fighting together on Scarif in Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they part, and that's it. That leads us. That leaves us uh, the finale. What a show. This continues to be some of the best Star Wars anyone yeah. has ever seen.
2: Yeah, it, it's so good. And, okay, so let's think about it. The finale's coming up. Seems like it's going to take place at Marva's funeral. That seems like the most likely option. I wonder... Do you think what? What do you think they're building in *Knockina 5? Because I think a lot of people were kind of in this space where they were like, "Is it the Death Star? Is it you know something really important? Is it irrelevant?" Tony Gilroy has recently, in a couple of interviews, basically kind of said it's not irrelevant. It's actually incredibly relevant to season two, and it does oh. matter. Yeah, the ex- he 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 was interviewed in. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter, and he said, they're building season two. It's the spine of season two. I've heard all kinds of things and it's great. All of the material that the Empire has, I look at everything and think economically, how does this work? Who built Scarif? How do you build that? How do you build Idu? Yeah. How do you build the Death Star and the armada of ships? There's a lot of things that need to be built and there's an incredible amount of material. So to me, what they're building is not as important as the scale of it. But he said they're building the spine of season two, so I'm very interested. I, well, I
1: this sh- I I've been wondering all season as well, and the ship that intercepts Luthen made me wonder. Obviously, it could be anything, and it could be the Death Star, and it could be AT-ATs, but I'm, I am i was wondering if it's not, because we haven't seen them yet, mm. some kind of Star Destroyer class. Oh, that would ship. be
2: really interesting, and could be Because a good, we haven't
1: seen them yet. That's
2: a huge high stakes, but it's not yeah. the Death Star. Yeah, it, right. it, Tony actually, like, debunked one of the theories that I loved the most, which was so bleak, and definitely was, like, one... I just think it's so good, because it's so in tone of the show... Somebody, a lot of really popular fan, fan theory was that every room is just building the next room.
1: Oh my God. How is bleak, so bleak is that? Tony that was is like, like <laughs> legitimately the bleakest thing. It's ever. so sad.
2: And Tony was like, that's so bleak, but so good. Paraphrasing. But yeah, that was not the case. So I, I love that idea. I think the star, I think Team X-Ray looking at the chat is, I think we're all in on the Star Destroyer. I think that is, I think that's a really great call. Because also, One Star Destroyer, building one Star Destroyer, destroying one Star Destroyer, trying to stop a Star Destroyer. That is a very doable 12-episode arc. I would be very interested to see if that's what it is, especially the reading that we've done, the books that we love, like Claudia Gray, uh, Lost Stars, I always shout it out. But that's a really interesting book, takes place over the three original trilogy films with new characters and kind of what the day-to-day of their lives looks like in the rebellion and and in the empire. and I can kind of imagine them going for that kind of like here's what you know digging into what Andor's done so well showing the bureaucracy, and the little people who are behind these things. The people yeah. like Cyril who work doing one job that seems totally disconnected to the horrors of the Empire but are exactly still tools of it. And the one person in the Rebellion who doesn't even know they're in the Rebellion who just helps someone out because they think it's the right thing to do and then that person goes on to lead it. I mean, I, I think that's so interesting and I think the Star Destroyer could be a great landscape for that to to take place in season two.
1: Well, we've got more Andor coming up. Up next, uh, a conversation with Andor creator, Tony Gilroy. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Perfect if you're sick and tired of the traditional old sweatpants and and the breathable shorts and all that stuff that just makes you look like you're in gym class back in eighth grade and you hate it. Everything is designed to work out in, but it doesn't look or feel like it. It's so comfortable. You'll want to wear it all the time. Seriously, it's more comfortable than whatever you're wearing right now, unless you're wearing Viore right now, which is possible. The product is versatile. I say again, you can do many things with the product. You could do any activity that you can think of for the human body using this product. Like what, you might be saying. How about running? Okay, that's good. What else? How about jogging, which is just kind of like a slower version of running? Okay, I can do that. What about training? Got it. Swimming. Yes, that's right. You can enter a completely other medium of the earth and also use the product. Yoga, weightlifting, CrossFit, but also doing nothing. My favorite activity, just doing nothing, lounging around, watching and or on the television. Happier on a healthy planet. Here's the great thing about Viore that's that's extra, that's just like an extra thing tacked on in addition to all the great feelings you're going to have when you have it on your body. It's 100% offsetting their carbon footprint. They care about the planet. They are also reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. We're in 2022, so you do the math. They're utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowered your best active life. You've heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again. I have two pairs of the men's Sundays performance jogger in, uh, in black and burgundy, and I wear them probably three times a week. Dead serious. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Viore.com slash x-ray. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash x-ray. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you will enjoy free shipping on any U.S. order over $75 and free returns. Go to Viore.com slash x-ray and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Indeed ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022 god love you with a powerful hiring partner big goals are no big deal you need indeed indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract interview and hire all in one place don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with indeed find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like indeed instant match Assessments and virtual interviews. Do you hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed's employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment, the very instant they sponsor a job. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed.com slash x-ray, all for good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash x-ray, Indeed.com slash x-ray. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to The High Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests this week. We are thrilled to have Tony Gilroy, Oscar-nominated writer and director, and the creator of Andor. Note, we recorded this interview while uh, Rosie and I were on the road. Apologies in advance if the audio quality is not quite up to X-ray vision top, top standards. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. I think one of the things that's really knocked Rosie and I out about your story is how it shows how regular people, not necessarily, you know, Jedi, space wizards, et cetera, uh, would get enmeshed in a fight like this, would either rebel or decide to uh, join the forces that would oppress the rebellion. What was the genesis of this story?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it started from, uh, you know, the concept from... uh from Lucasfilm which was that they they were interested in doing a prequel from Rogue One and doing a uh, you know the 5 years of Cassian Andor story before Rogue One. And so that was that was the very first that was the that was the buy in and then you know what's your version of that I think they tried they did try a couple of the versions of it with different approaches my attitude about it sort of from the sidelines along the way was it seems to me it's pretty obvious what you have to do if you have this incredibly accomplished uh, character in rogue one who is you know the tactical leader the 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 person that the alliance trusts to go on the most important mission possible and a guy who exhibits all these incredible leadership skills along the way tactically and he changes his mind and he lies and he does all the things that a leader has to do on a mission like that and then the guy gives his life for mm-hmm. everybody mm. willingly but who who is that person so my idea is, I said, "Well, you want to—if you're going to do a show about that person, you know, they're going what's going to happen to them. You want to take them as far away from that as possible." Five years ago, mm. you want to have a show about becoming. Yeah, our show, in many ways, is about becoming. It's a revolution becoming a revolution. It's about Cassy and becoming a revolutionary and then becoming a leader. It's about a lot of people becoming different things. So,
2: and when it came to. You knew you were going to show the becoming. So, when it came to building the world, one of the things that's kind of blown us away, Star Wars has always been analogous, but this feels like a show that has a lot of very radical things to say about building a rebellion and the becoming of a rebellion and the kind of world that encourages a rebellion, a world with horrific prison labor, you know, a world that oppresses the most vulnerable. Could you speak a little bit about building that world that would encourage Cassian to become the person that we see in, in Rogue One?
0: Well, canonically, in Star Wars, in the five years, I have a five-year tranche of history to take care of. I have a five-year calendar. So I know what happens in those five years. I don't really have to spend very much time thinking about anything else. It's And so I have to – those five years are canonically clear to me. Um, there's no question of the established atrocities and and motivations of an empire, right? I mean, that's known, yeah, yeah. Um, and we know we know how how bitter and horrifying and genocidal the battle will ultimately be, and how you know devastating it will be to Alderaan and everything else. So you know all that. Um, but all that said, um, I do never start anything with an agenda. I start with characters and and i have my mm. personal beliefs that i hope will you know in some way uh osmotically you know work their way through but i don't ever think about oh i have an extra grind about this i'm going to talk about this or i didn't start michael clayton because i wanted to do a story about industrial <laughs> uh, you know, industrial, uh, you know, atrocity. I started because I was like, oh, the guy was a fixer. And what happens is, so I'm really interested in the characters and I, and I've learned over time that it works for me. And it's just what I'm interested. I start very, very small and I build my way out. Um, I know there's been a lot of, you know, there's a lot of political. I've been watching the, you know, the conversations. It's fascinating to watch all the conversations that the show is, you know, engendered over the past couple months. But, um, and I know the show. There's all kinds of people that are trying to lay claim in different ways to the the politics of the show. But you know, to me, I've been studying history just as an amateur, as an idiot, am- you know, a, a, mm. a, a idiot a home a DIY historian for years. And you know, there isn't anything in our show that hasn't been going on for three thousand years. I mean, colonialism, yeah. slavery, oppression, mm-hmm. horror, behavior, torture, whatever. It's all there. So. The great thing about this show is you can sort of needle drop and and do a I could take you know we could take something from the Haitian Revolution, I can take something from here, I can take something from the from the Russian Revolution. So that's all that's the beauty of it. And that's but my way in is really through character. What happens next to the people you care about? I'm making you care about them. Thinking about your work
1: you know, from The cutting Edge all the way up through uh, the board. I, I love The cutting Edge, just yeah, come FYI. On. Now, that's I, a movie, about, that's movie about revolution. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's great rom-com.
0: I don't think that's come. been fully analyzed yet. I don't think there's been a piece. I'm ready to
1: write a piece. That's the episode. <laughs> but, but, you know, like, thinking about you might working that way, it's often these characters who find themselves for one reason or another in a context that they were not, necessarily prepared for, and now they have to make do with what they have. You have the ice skater, the, you know, the hockey player who now can no longer play hockey, now has to do figure skating. Uh, you have the spy who, uh, it, you know, was brainwashed but now has their agency back, and they're cut loose in the world. In uh, Michael Clayton, you have a guy who's, uh, you know, the scales fall from his eyes. He's a fixer for uh, much bigger figures and realizes he's caught between these two worlds of power and powerlessness. And his morality, Um, looking at looking at Andor in that in that kind of context, I'm really struck by how it's uh, it it seems like and I know you say you don't you don't start with, uh, you know, with any with any kind of like agenda. But I wonder if you might say if you might talk about how you build a character and, you know, where this kind of
0: character falls and the
1: kind of characters that you've that you've that you've built in the past. Love cutting
0: edge again. It's a great thing. I mean, hopefully they're all unique. I mean, every single one of them wants to be, you know, bespoke and and they want to be their own thing. I mean, I think that uh, I I think I've come to believe over time that uh, that uh, the single most important part of this is empathy, and you really you have to be ridiculously uh, empathetic to all of the people that you're building um, Mm -hmm. and very and really care about them. Doesn't matter if they're, you know, uh, Orson Krannick or, 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 you know, or Doug Dorsey in, the uh, in, in the funny- <laughs> <laughs> You gotta like, you gotta get in there. You know, you gotta really live it with them, and you gotta really. So, um, I-, I, I don't have a holistic answer to that. I have a very personal. Every one of them is a little temple, and they're all, you know, that makes it sound pretentious and bullshitty, but like they're all. They're all real to me and and, uh-huh. uh, and they all they couldn't sound like anybody other than themselves. And I think you can always tell that when you read someone's writing, you know, if you read a writer and mm. if, if all the characters sort of sound the same, or if someone's IQ goes up and down based on what the, they want the story to do or whatever, then you know you're with somebody who's not maybe maybe not uh, uh, not not sticking to the rigor of that. Good mm. writing is really where the writers are invested in the people so much that they could only do what they do.
2: Yeah, and something that I found like really unique as from a writing standpoint of Andrew is this choice of the arcs and kind of telling these small stories within the bigger kind of season. Could you talk a little bit about that choice and kind of the why that felt like the best route to go?
0: Well, a lot of people do, you know, I mean, when we started out, there with people, I remember, you know, it used to be, a, I, I, I dip my toe into television over the last 20, 30 years and network television a couple of times, tried to do things. And the, the, the dictum always was, oh, your first episode has to be your 20th episode. or Your first episode has to be your 20th <laughs> episode. I mean, that was really what the the old system was. And then, you know, and then you move into a more, you know, as the stories have gotten more uh, uh, long term and, and you know, and, 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 and more complicated, there's a different kind of structure for how they work. Um. But I don't think that there's any clear... I think everybody's doing everything for the first time now in in many ways. I think we're just at the frontier of streaming and we're watching these huge shows. I mean, these are the beginning of something really new. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any rule um, about what to do. And the way our show laid out, it was like, well, coincidentally, directors direct three episodes for us. The directors come in and they direct a block of three. So it sort of became a weird organizing principle in its own Mm. way. And you kind of lean into it a little bit. We're not perfect, because you see in 7 we drop. 7 is a standalone mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. and then it got in 10. And then our last two episodes will be sort of of a piece a little bit, I guess. We're not, I don't think we're like, we're not, you know, it's not It's not this rigorous, strict thing. It's kind of the way it laid out and kind of the way it worked for the directors. And um, And I think that there are no rules. I think the main rule is, do you want to see what happens next? That's yeah. really, yeah. that's the only rule that matters, right?
1: Yeah. I, I, well, you you mentioned dipping your toe in TV before. Obviously, this is a, a, a TV property. You've moved from screenwriting to directing, and now you're a showrunner working with directors. What's that transition been like? And how does it change your perspective as a person who's telling stories?
0: Yeah, I'll talk about, I'll talk, I want not talk about the directing thing, because that's an old story for yeah. me, but show running thing is fascinating because I was going to direct the first three episodes of this and I was like, okay, that's what I'm here for and I'll do this and then I'll get them. And then, you know, you realize what the gig is and it was just incredibly naive and and COVID really saved our show because we got, we got completely shut down and just everything just went on hold for six or seven months and I couldn't come back to London. I didn't want to come back to London and direct in the midst there was no vaccine or anything like that at that point. And, uh, it just turned into like, okay, let's, and I started rewriting my episodes and rewriting everybody else's episodes and tuning everything up and, and, um, came time to hire directors and it's, uh, I've never hired directors before. And that's a really, that's a really fascinating, I I didn't take it quite as seriously in the beginning as I, I think I thought it would be easier. It's very, very difficult. You have to watch lots of stuff, incredible amount of stuff. You have to find a way to parse your way through it. Um, there's an incredible amount of competition between shows because there's so many shows it's really mm. hard to get directors and it's really there's a limited number of directors who have you know we need directors who have a certain amount of flight time you know you can't it's, this is like flying a 747 you can't just get so so we have a different criteria than they had to be it was it was it's very unanticipatedly difficult we lucked out the first time around i think we've lucked out this time around we have uh we have three new directors that are coming back for this for this uh the second half we start shooting in november but um man it's it's i'll tell you one thing it's it, the competition is really really tough mm-hmm. to find people that not to find if you have a smaller show where you could swing away and be loose you yeah. know kind of thing, think but you can't figure out how to do this show on the job, not, not just, <laughs> right. It's just, it's just yeah. like too many yeah. people have just drowned. So the, the, the Venn diagram of what you're looking for, it's a very, bar- and then everybody's after the same people. So it was very tricky that.
2: And it was such a like long, like you talked about, you know, being shut down by COVID, this new experience of a showrunner, searching for these directors. How did it, and obviously the nature of filming a show like this is very different to a smaller film or a smaller show. How did it feel once you started to see the fully finished episodes and kind of see the end of that first part of the journey of making the first season?
0: Well, I mean, quite honestly, I have to, I mean, I've been on it for three years now. And in the middle of it, you know i'll be honest just wondering what did i do to my life you know
1: <laughs> yeah 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 yeah
0: i mean and i mean seriously is it worth it i mean waking mm, yeah. up many many days going like what have i done i could be doing anything i want to do mm-hmm. i could do it write in a play i could make a movie yeah. could, what am i doing what did i do to my life is it worth it and it really wasn't until you know about a year ago we really did start to put the episodes together in a a kind of way that we could actually sort of, and solve some of the, you know, really some of the visual effects started coming in. We started to do stuff. And and my brother, John is sort of the over, the post-production overlord. (laughs) So, you know, once the show started to come together and we could look at them in a whole piece and have other people outside of our little tiny community, look at them, it started to be like, Oh my God, maybe this was really worth it. And, um, that that's the feeling more than anything else of like oh my god i haven't wasted the last three years because it really <laughs> there's times along the way where you you could get on a movie you could be on a movie and you could hate the people that you're in business with or you could whatever you could survive it now it seems making a movie seems like nothing to me now mm-hmm. this is like you're just oh my god i'm on a whaling version a, a whaling mission <laughs> in, <laughs> i'm in Papayake, and how am i ever going to get back to to nantucket you know so, <laughs>
1: Well, Tony, you've you've, uh, you've made something really, really incredible.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we're big fans of your work, and congratulations on the show. Uh, we can't wait to see how it ends. All right,
0: man. Yeah, so thank, so thank you so much. This was cool. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah,
0: you too. Bye-bye.
1: Big thank you to Tony Gilroy and Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, what do you have to plug? I plug, will, plug, 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 t- plug, 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 plug.
2: Tony's not here, so I will say... Watch Andor, and The Cutting Edge. Watch Andor. <laughs> and The Cutting Edge, seeing as we talked about it so much on that interview. Um, for me, you can find me, Rosie Marks, at Instagram and Letterboxd. I am here every week. Uh, I will be having some cool comic book news to talk about. You can read my writing at Polygon, Den of Geek, IGN, Nerdist, a bunch of different places. And I now have officially migrated my website. So my website is rosynight.com if you want to look at some stuff. Check it out. Let's Check crash, it crash, out. That, what, crash, crash that website. Crash the website. Crash <laughs> WordPress.
1: <laughs> some uh, quick updates and news. X-Ray Vision will be taking a well-earned break for Thanksgiving next week. We hope you're all able to do that as well. So catch the next episode on December 2nd where we'll be diving into the finale of Andor. Lots of Andor discussion that week. Plus... We're going to be hosting a panel and a live podcast recording at L.A. Comic-Con on Saturday, December 3rd from 1130 to 1 p.m. Pacific in uh, panel room 402. More uh, information on that to come and you can find that through the show notes. But again, if you're in L.A. in the first week of December and you want to come through, come check it out. Come meet us. Come talk to us. It'll be fun. Uh, Check out the L.A. Comic-Con app website plus the show notes for specifics again and tickets if you want to come see the uh, live taping of x-ray vision five star reviews we gotta have them we love them we need them we can't live without them here is matt morici uh rosie knight is amazing they're a great tandem and really appreciate the branding as well five stars thank you matt
2: thank you matt and thank you to the people who designed our branding which is really
1: cool and then finally, uh, some other uh, housekeeping notes. X-Ray Vision is going to be going to two episodes at an undisclosed date in the future. We're figuring that out right now. But it's going to be in the uh, more medium term than the uh, longer term, certainly. And thanks to all of you who have reached out uh, and have expressed its sadness at the ending of Take Line. Uh, So delighted that everybody listened to it And it was a pleasure to give uh, all of you Some of the most fun sports content I thought out there Um, And it will free up time For all of us to do other stuff Thank you for your kind words Also thanks for everyone who wished me uh, A happy birthday birthday. A couple weeks ago That was so delightful Uh, uh, That was so nice X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Rellaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you in two weeks. It's, uh, it's his dog from yeah, I want to talk about Nakina 5 today. First of all, absolutely it's despicable what's going on there, Mike. I, we, you know, we, the, the galaxy's got to know about the things that are going on there. It's absolutely terrible. But I just got to say this, uh, Kino, first of all, I hope you survived. I don't know if you survived, but uh, just to anybody who's watching this who's hearing this right now, swimming's not that hard, guys. Like, don't be so nervous about it. You just get in there. Here's what it is. Kick your legs and then just, like, move your arms. That's it. That's it. You did it for nine months in your mother's womb. You could do it again. It's not that hard. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's not a large, uh, long distance to swim, but Keno, don't be scared of it. You survived, not Keno 5. You can survive this. Just kick your legs. All right, I'll take my answer off here. Thank you.